Hello, and welcome to the CEC Podcast. I'm your host, Demonic Murray, back from a long and unexpectedly extended hiatus. This is episode 5, Gender in Games. I would like to apologize for anyone waiting for weeks for this to come out. And I would like to apologize especially for the guests I have this week. This podcast was recorded right before the hiatus, and it just took me a long time to get to. First off, you might have noticed a theme song, which I've taken from the chiptunes artist BitShifter. Also, there's a wonderful podcast icon from Alex Myers, who I would like to thank. This episode in three parts. The first, gender depictions in games, women in the game industry, and tackling these issues of gender in games criticism. Hope you enjoy the show, and here we go. Today I'm here with Alex Raymond from the Iris Network. Hello, Alex. Hello. Olivia, also known as Ali Moon from the Cerise Magazine. Hi. Brinstar, who I'll be referring to in her, as her real name, Regina from the blog Acid for Blood. Hello. And Simon Ferrari from the blog Chunking Espresso. Hey, how's it going? Hey, thanks everyone for coming. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. So, who would like to start? I was thinking about opening this up, because we were talking about minority and gender voices and underprivileged voices in gaming, and I was thinking maybe you should start with these sort of representations in gaming and how we should address this issue. The blog post you wrote on Alex on Sex as a Commodity, do you want to give an overview of that article? Okay, well... the post was basically, I read an essay online from a recently published anthology called Yes Means Yes, and it's a book with a bunch of essays by um, feminist writers about how to, it's, well, it's basically about various essays about rape culture and related topics. So, and the one essay that I read was about the commodity model of sex and how we think about sex as a culture. And then I looked at how that commodity model is really reduced to its most basic components in video games that have those sort of relationships. And then I wrote a little bit about how games would benefit from using the performance model that's talked about in the essay. Do you want to give some background on both the performance model and the commodity model? I I think the idea is that in sex, it's not who can see people coming together and enthusiastically enjoying sex together. It's the man is pursuing the sex and it's a service that the woman provides for the male pleasure. Like that's what she has to offer. And it's not really about her pleasure or her enjoyment, but about what the man gets out of it. Yeah, I think exactly. that's, Thank you. <laughs> that's what the commodity argument is saying. And I mean, on the surface, it sounds a bit extreme, but if you think about the way men and women are portrayed as sexual beings in our culture, the way virginity in women is particularly prized, but no one really cares about men. As Alex mentioned in one of those threads about purity balls, the idea that women must stay pure for their their wedding night, but no one cares about men. And I mean, you see it in, in so many cultures all around the world where if women are found to have sex before they're married, a lot of men will want to annul the marriage or the woman is seen as tainted goods as less than. God, I was reading a Gawker article yesterday. This guy made this hideous rape analogy talking about how his television show had been cannibalized by the networks, saying it would be like if his daughter was gang raped on her wedding day and he had to provide a horribly beaten and raped daughter to her groom on the wedding day and would the groom still even want her. I mean, it's it's things like that, that that's how a lot of people subtly view sex between men and women. I agree totally with that, especially on the internet. It's the belief that rape can be used as irony or satire, but there is no such humor within that term or that act in itself. But aside from that extreme, how do we see just the act of sex 
and the value of that performance as a commodity in games. I especially saw that in recent RPGs, especially The Witcher, where you get, you know, these porn cards, which is the assumption that, you know, you would have sex with this woman. But I think that's basically, it, it doesn't get much more complex than that in games, where it's just like another achievement, it's just something like collect, like they're, even in Fable, there's like one treasure cave that you can only get into if you have sex with ten women or something like that. Off the top of my head, the only times I can even think of with sex and gaming right now are in Grand Theft Auto games, where you have the prostitutes that you can then kill to steal your money back. But I remember a scene in God of War where Kratos is getting out of bed and there's two naked women fawning all over him and he obviously doesn't give a about either one of them and it's just pushing them off him like, get away from me, you nuisances. Yeah, sex in games isn't, isn't very complex. The whole women in refrigerators thing, I guess maybe it'd be useful to explain. Are you familiar with women in refrigerators? <laughs> women in refrigerators refers to this kind of feminist movement in comics, I guess it was, it's probably about a decade old, it kind of died down. It comes from a Green Lantern comic where uh, the Kyle Rayner Green Lantern comes home one day and finds that the villain has killed his girlfriend and stuffed her in the refrigerator. And that was just kind of the spark that just pissed off a lot of comic readers. They just had finally had enough, so they started this whole movement that was just cataloging how women in comics typically aren't really much of a character. They exist to motivate and give personality to the men. They're killed off, they're disposable, they're maimed, they're raped, whatever. Things happen to them in order to provide motivation for the male characters, in order to yeah. push them along. And I mean, once you think about it, it happens all the time. Women are killed, so men have motivation. Like in uh, Gears of War 2, where Dom is, is trying to find his wife, and no one cares about her wife. The wife only exists in so much as how she affects what happens with Dom, and then he just ends up killing her because the locusts have completely destroyed who she is. So the whole idea with women in refrigerators is that women don't really exist as characters. They exist as motivators for, for male stories and, and male personalities. And I think that's pretty pervasive in games, too. Yeah, the entire Mario franchise is based upon... <laughs> You know, rescuing the princess who has no personality of her own, really, until, you know, the series develops much. She's been kind of getting a personality in some some spunk in recent games, but yeah. One oh, of and Zelda, is... too. Like, it's called Legend of Zelda, but where's Zelda? She does pick up the visage of, or identity of Sheik after a while, which... Yes. I mean, yes. so Sheik is her, like, powerful form? Is Sheik... This is interesting, because if Sheik is a male then you would say, well, look, like, in order for Zelda to be powerful, she has to be transformed into a male. But if Sheik is a female, then then it is actually legitimately empowering, right? But I don't really know what Sheik is supposed to be at all. Well, Sheik's referred to uh, as a he in, is it? Okay. Uh, in Ocarina, although they made her into a female for Smash Brothers, so I guess... Right. Sheik is not... I don't think we're supposed to think of Sheik as male. I think for the most part, we're playing Ocarina of Time. You're supposed to think that Sheik is a male, but it's just a disguise. I don't think that Sheik as a character is supposed to be canon male. We know right. it's Zelda, so I think <laughs> Sheik is pretty cool. I like yeah, that. There's an interesting article I read a year ago about you know men playing women in MMOs and the sort of different experiences they have and the different interactions they have with you know, anonymity. And people treat female avatars differently, even if they don't know if they're women or not, by saying, oh, we'll help you out with this quest, or you know, do you want some loot to help get started? There's a, a really good blog post on um, about that, about one, one guy who role-played a, a female character online, and um, he used to post at Iris. Is He went by... Oh, uh, yeah, his post is really powerful stuff, and it was, I found it to be really interesting. Probably the experience of male avatars versus female avatars is different. While it can give you know the individual a safe space to explore their own identity, it can also be like a rational choice that you make and say, you know, I'm going to get more loot, or they're going to treat me nicer, or I won't if I play a male avatar, that sort of thing. Like, my experiences in PlayStation Home, like, I have a, both a male and a female avatar, and my female avatar when i initially like started she would get harassed like people would go into her personal space when i sat down on benches and stuff the male avatars would like shove their crotches in my face and i'd have to go away like it's just really a physically intimidating space and also the the other fact is that my female avatar doesn't look stereotypically feminine so i'd also get a lot of homophobic slurs like you're so ugly why do you look gay blah 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 
She and, had a mohawk, right? Yeah, my, my, my home avatar has a mohawk. When I'm playing as my male avatar, I don't get any of that. People just basically ignore me. I'm just kind of part of the scenery, I guess, unless I speak up. But when you play a female avatar, you're like, people in home like gravitate towards you. And if you start talking to them, usually it's a normal conversation, but I've seen conversations between male and female avatars in home turn into kind of like flirting and stuff like that. And of course, it doesn't happen when it's all male avatars like hanging out. But you don't, you don't even know whether the person behind that female avatar is a guy or a girl. The same thing, you don't know whether person playing that male avatar is male or female. They can be just like me if I don't want to get bothered and if I, I just want to look around, you know, I'll, I'll play male avatar. It's like not even, not even just avatars. There was that recent post by Tracy John, formerly of MTV Multiplayer, where a friend of hers on Xbox Live, his gamer tag was highlighted by Microsoft and his friends list was public and a lot of people looked at his friends list, saw her name because it was a, a woman's name she was suddenly inundated over a few days with like, I don't know, dozens, hundreds of requests from, from guys wanting to play with her. And she checked and turned out that her friend who had been publicized, none of his male friends had been harassed or bothered by people. Only she had as like the one public woman on his list. And she just had tons of guys asking her, I want to play with you. You're a girl who games. Like, let's be friends. And when she would ask them, like, why are you adding me? I'm a stranger. None of them really had a response besides your girl, just add. <laughs> Oddly, I got a lot of requests to add them on my PlayStation friends list. And I'm like, I don't even know you. Like, you didn't even talk to me. Like, you just saw me walking around at home, and now you want to add me? I don't understand. Yeah, Twist. Twist, who also posted Iris, and I know she was on that thread at, at Critical Distance, said that she got a lot of requests from guys at home to friend her, and when she didn't immediately friend them, they started threatening her and harassing her. You know, why aren't you adding me back? Add me back now. What's wrong with you? Kind of treatment. I don't think that's a problem with gaming culture. I think that's more of a problem with the sort of anonymity culture that the internet provides. And everyone has different personas, their online personas and their regular personas. And there's this sort of freedom and liberation that we're not, uh, there, there is no sort of, no sort of responsibility because of anonymity. Yeah, maybe they should know that they actually have no anonymity if playing an online game. Because, I mean, LB Jeffries did this post about it a while ago. In the EULA, for almost every online game, uh, you pretty much sign away your right to protect anything that you say or do. I, I don't think it would solve anything, but maybe some high-profile lawsuits would be great. Most people or, don't read the user agreement, but it's true. Right. Any online games will keep the record of all your interactions. They keep your chat logs. They keep what instance you've been in when you were talking to that guy, record of your trades, or even private conversations between people. They have that, and they can they can look at that later. And if you know the law, law enforcement comes in and says, we need this information, they have to give that up. But people think that game companies monitor every single conversation but people aren't necessarily aware that everything is being kept. Like, all that data is there, and it's it's logged. Well, see, so that's the weird thing, is that you could maybe conceive, like, an organization buying data from an MMO to find out exactly how prevalent that kind of behavior is in order to design around it. But I guess most of the people who end up buying that data are just other people looking to make popular MMOs or something like that. There were some researchers at... That Sony had worked with a bunch of researchers to on, on something. I don't, I don't know what the the purpose of the of the study was, but they made all their their data from I think it was available so they could conduct their research, and that's that's kind of unprecedented because I don't think any other group has had that much access to an online game's data before. So do we want to look at games like No One Lives Forever or like even Beyond Good and Evil and how the female characters are represented and portrayed in those games? I can definitely talk about Beyond Good and Evil, but not uh, No One Lives Forever. I've never yeah, I haven't. I don't, I don't know, know No One Lives Forever, but Alex and, and Regina know Beyond Good and Evil very well. The game is awesome. <laughs> no One Lives Forever. It's probably one of the, my favorite games ever, and it's just basically like a female James Bond, Austin Powers, but... She doesn't, she doesn't have sex with anyone, but uses her sexuality to impose herself on other people. And it's weird because the first game is a, is a first-person shooter, but the second game becomes the sort of other stealth game. The entire thing is this, like, 60s conceit. So it's basically like 60s Austin Powers, 
James Bond kind of thing. It's interesting that's set in that era because feminism is beginning to become on the rise in that era. And, I mean, do you know any other female protagonist games that we should name drop for people to check out right now? God, there are not that many of them. Yeah, that's hard to... Mirror's Edge is good. Portal. There's that Bayonetta that's coming out soon, but that just makes me cringe (laughs) inside so much. Yeah, I mean, there's tons of bad ones. I mean, you can do Tomb Raider. You know, Um, and Tomb Raider is interesting because I don't know when... The first game came out. Was was this what they were intending with Tomb Raider? I mean, obviously in every subsequent game, they're just cashing in on the sex appeal. But I wonder with the first game, I kind of wonder sometimes if the series didn't have to take that the direction that it did. And if, it, if Lara Croft could have been a cooler and more empowering woman in games instead of just the kind of the archetype for sexy women in games. You know, if they took away the, the camera angles that go right behind her her butt and they took away her kind of ridiculous features i mean she's not she's not portrayed as someone who uses her sexuality um like against characters in the game i mean she is a powerful female the biggest problems are just kind of how she's modeled and and the camera angles they use Mm. yeah yeah and that's why i wonder like i didn't i haven't played any of the games in that series in the first game is that how the the game design was or is that something that developed as a result of fan response to Lara. I did play a bit of the first game, and it, it does seem pretty evident that it mm. it's created for the male gaze and for, you know, for guys. God, I hate those butt shots so much in games. <laughs> like, butts and, and the boobs. The the Underworld takes it to an, a new level of ridiculous. I had a Tomb Raider game in a while, but they added this thing where not only do you is your camera locked behind her, her bottom, but her breasts sway to the sides of her body so that you can also see them constantly while she's running, like from behind. And so, yeah, you can tell that Ooh. they've totally... God, while well, she's not... She's going to break God, that mind. is something. You know, you see it in comics and you see it in video games. Whenever women pose, they always have to pose in such a way that you can see both of their butts and their breasts. And let me tell you, that is some physically difficult way. That's a really physically difficult way to contort your body so that both your breasts and your butt can be visible from the same perspective at the same time. It's completely not realistic at all. And it would be quite painful. And yet it, we see it all the time. God, and to have your breasts sway so much that you can see them from behind? No. Yeah. No. <laughs> not, they're not living in a physical reality whatsoever. Yeah. Oh, God. And I hate the way so often breasts are drawn in game art. Uh, if, you, if you look at Samus Aran's Zero Suit, you'll see what I'm talking about. The way the... The curve of her breast is outlined so perfectly in her suit. It looks as though she's not wearing a suit over her breast. She's wearing a suit that has cups specifically made to, like, slot her boobs in so you can see the entire outline of the boob. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's not the way tight clothing fits over breasts, but the way it's drawn yeah. in games, it's like she's wearing something that conforms around the breast and then around the body beneath it, not on top of the breast, if that makes any sense. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, in um, in uh, movies, the people who design women's clothes in movies are usually women. And so there is at least the level of advocacy, at least understanding how women's bodies work. Where, I mean, and I'm not saying that in Hollywood blockbusters, like, they're making clothes to be respectable to, for women, but at least they know how women's bodies work. Whereas in games, I'd be surprised if there were many female designers who were designing the clothes for females who would even know something like uh-huh. that. So it is, a, I definitely agree that it's this societal thing where we even have men who are, they don't even know how women's bodies work. And to have those people designing the clothes that women wear in games is is completely ridiculous. Yeah, I, th- I think it's very uncommon to have women costume or clothing designers in games. I, I haven't done any research, but I, I know like at my company, we do have a woman who is an artist who does design the clothes for our games. So, you know, there's at least one. <laughs> and another thing to consider, too, is even when you do have female developers and designers, there's still a lot of pressure from marketing departments right. and from higher ups that are pushing them to conform to what has gone before and what they think is going to sell. 
Yeah, that's definitely true. Like the the common marketing convention, like understanding is that to put a sexy woman on the box or else it's not going to sell as well. Even if you are progressive, if, even if you you see, if you dislike, you know, all the sexism in games and marketing and stuff, you still have a lot of pressure from just games culture in general, like the business. It's, it's all driven towards, you know, sales and w- what they see now is like, oh, hot women sell games, so we have to keep doing that. Yeah, there's a lot of pressure. I think that's pretty illustrative of something that I hear a lot of feminists say all the time. We're told that we're just man-haters and and we hate men, but if you look at the way a lot of men seem to, what they expect from other men or the way they talk about other men, it seems like anti-feminist men hate men a lot more than we ever do. If they, the idea that men require a sexy woman on the cover in order to purchase it, I... I don't know. I like to think that the male gender is more intelligent and discerning than all they need are boobs and they're satisfied. But that's what a lot of, of marketing types and a lot of video game designers seem to think that's all it takes to, to appeal to men's base instincts. It just comes to my attention that both No One Lives Forever, Beyond Good and Evil, and Mirror's Edge, with, which have very strong women that aren't typically sexualized that you find in games, were all marketing failures. Is that just a problem of our demographic as you know, as a gaming culture? Is it's the problem because gaming is attuned to these teenage boys that are it's just something that the gaming culture isn't mature enough to accept. So it's not marketed towards men, it is marketed towards fourteen year old boys, is the big quote, you know, from most people who interview these marketers that fourteen year old boy is the ideal market, right? They don't even realize that there are women and men and 14-year-old girls and 10 year you know, I mean, playing video games. Um, or they won't admit it if they do realize it. Well, if they do realize it, they don't operate with that inclusiveness in mind. What they do is they say, well, women may play our game, but, you know, they're not necessarily the ones buying it. Um, they focus more on teen and young male gamers because they know that's the sure thing. They Their numbers tell them that's the sure thing, and... They're, they're going based on history, but they're not really looking a little bit further and saying, well, you know, that may be historically true, but it may be if we were a little bit more inclusive in our marketing, we might appeal to more markets. It's too risky for them. But, you know, I don't think you can blame it entirely on that teen boy market because, I mean, how can any marketing department really think that that's what's driving the industry? The video game industry is, is enormous now, and... I think a lot of that is primarily because you're having massive sales from adults who have money, like all of us. So many people in the working world that have the money to consume and purchase video games at a a much higher rate than kids. I mean, kids have more time to play, but they don't have the money necessarily. When I was a kid, you know, I'd play maybe five games a year because that's all I could afford. Now it's a light month if I buy only five games in that month. (laughs) And the other thing, too, is I don't think it's just that they're thinking that little boys are going to like this. I think that's the kind of mentality that a lot of developers have towards women and and gaming in general, too. Uh, There was, what was it, the, the rant section at this year's GDC and... What was her name? Heather, Heather Chaplin. Heather, yeah, and she, she had that rant about how male developers are just, like, stunted developmentally, and a, a, no one really responded very well to that, but I thought I thought she was onto something. Uh, the core of what she was trying to get at, I really agreed with. A great and interesting paper on genderization in games, and what they did was they took typical game genres and they put like a female mask over it so basically you have a mario game instead of connecting collecting coins you collect cash which you could spend at the mall and a lot of these games are doing especially i I know michael abbott posted about this game that was put out to girls and i've been seeing a lot of genres i think it's fascinating how companies feel that they just place a new new face a new mask on a genre and say this is for women because it has a woman and it has shopping that's something a woman wants to play. Like the pink Ouija board that was just released. <laughs> <laughs> just slap pink on it and the girls will flock to it. But those are fairly successful, surprisingly. What's your comment on that? That was Brinsar's point on, on Michael's post that women, or I mean, you know, girls and then who grow into women, they grow up in an environment where they're encouraged to like pink. Their parents tell them they like pink and stuff like that. So, I mean, of course, pink sells well because 
you've been told your entire life that you're a girl and you like pink. Yeah, it's, so, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Like, you know, if you're inundated with all these messages in the media, um, at home, at school, that girls are this way, then, of course, when you see a game or something marketed in such a way that conforms to all these, like, ideal ways that girls should be like, you're going to be drawn to that. And, you know, the other thing, these, these pink-saturated games, stuff like <laughs> the Imagine Babies line or whatever, these games are not inherently bad. It's not, you know, they do sell well to young girls. And personally, on some level, I do think that's kind of great. Yeah, let's get them gaming while they're young, and then they'll grow up and start playing other stuff. But the fact of the matter is there are a lot of little girls and little kids who do like these kind of games, and that's fine. There's nothing there's nothing really wrong about that per se. I mean, they're perpetuating stereotypes that aren't really good to be feeding to children, but if that's what kids like, it's 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 not yeah. wrong to like that. But the problem is is one, stuff like Imagine Babies is only marketed to women. The idea that little boys might be interested in this too is just squashed and Men, little kids, like, little boys aren't really allowed to pursue that kind of stuff. They're told that it's wrong for them, and so that limits their interests at a young age. And the other thing is women are not, not stagnant. Like, we're treated as, like, this kind of mysterious, elusive entity. What do women want? Same thing as, as guys. We're, we're just, we have just as much variety as guys do. The things we're interested in have, have just as much variety and, and depth. Trying to shove us into a narrow stereotype and say, well, girls like pink and girls like imagined babies. Some girls do, and that's great, but then there are plenty that like other stuff, too. We're not just a stereotype. And that's the problem with the, the game market today, is that the games that are marketed towards women and girls are only like this kind of pink, very stereotypical image of what women want, but we're not... The marketing doesn't show us that, hey, it's okay to like, you know, action games. It's okay. Like, they're not marketing FPSs towards women. They're mm. not specifically targeting women for that. They not, might not have, like, super sexist messaging, but they're just trying to be marketing towards a broad audience, which is great. But we're not explicitly told, hey, women like these games, too. Like, it's okay. To play devil's advocate, there has been, <laughs> I mean, there is sort of, the idea of the gender-neutral game, which is like the puzzle game or the adventure game, but women play more casual games than men. And do you find that as good or as bad in terms of mapping out the, the gender sphere of what genres both sexes enjoy? One thing I read was a theory that men just admit to playing casual games less than women do. <laughs> that might have something to do with that. Because, like, everybody plays, you know, computer. Everybody plays, you know little browser games to get them through the day and stuff, so... The myth of men as hardcore gamers and women as casual gamers is, I mean, is ridiculous. I mean, I, I don't know that many women gamers, but the ones I do, usually they're really into, like, RP, Japanese RPGs and MMOs, right? So you're talking about games that require vast amounts of time. And then, on the other hand, when you, when you look at this illusion of men as hardcore gamers, there's the fact that 87% of uh, people don't finish the games that they play, right? They don't even, like, play to the end. Casual games are are the games that everybody plays. And mostly, people don't even just play casual games. Most people play the demos for casual games. And that's, like, across the board. That is the most popular, the one-stage demo for a casual game. And so, yeah, this the whole uh, men, hardcore, women, casual thing is, is completely fallacious. Or, Not to yeah. mention there are, there are a lot of guys who just play, you know, Madden and, and Halo and GTA, and they don't play in anything else. That's like their three games for the year or whatever. <laughs> well, and, you know, the other thing to consider from a marketing standpoint, let's say those statistics are true, that women primarily play casual games. What I would think that should tell a marketing department is, hey, you've got 50% of the population that is not playing your game. That is a massive potential market you could be tapping into that you should be trying to court and get to play your games because that's that could exponentially increase your sales. You could double your market if you <laughs> stopped treating this as a boys club. Well, it's not just a boys club. It's um, I mean, it's a first world country club too. There's a whole population of the globe that is not gaming. 
in that, well, but that's, no, I mean, they, that's they like, are gaming, but they are they're using the gray market or the black market to do it. Um, right, right, I agree. In the Philippines, like gaming is really is really big, and I remember like going back there on family vacations and stuff. And my cousins, they're from a relatively well-off family, and you know, if they were to buy legitimate games, non-pirated games, it would be so expensive that they'd probably only be able to play like one or two games a year. So definitely the first world is like locking out like so much of less wealthy gamers and they're going to play games anyway. And they do like my cousins are like huge gamers. They grew up gaming. Um, they're just as hardcore as anyone, you know, the Western world. But, you know, they, they just have to go through other means to, you know, enjoy the same things we do so easily because of our class status. I remember reading an article a few months back, I think it was in Brazil, there are like gaming cafes where they just have TVs and systems and games and people can come in and pay by the hour to play and they're really popular. Yeah, I, I used to do that like in, in the 80s, we'd go to a cafe and play Nintendo for an hour, you'd pay and you'd have like this whole big library of games. and In the Philippines? Yeah. I was just going to say, uh, I mean, so talking about Brazil, I mean, I do this like a, this journalism and games project, right, for my research for school. And we actually found that Brazilians were Brazilians were um, the biggest visitors to our website. And that if you look at like other countries, I mean, people who make serious games or, or like serious issues games, you know, smaller games for the internet. I mean, so Italy's really big, but Brazil is this kind of weird, like growing powerhouse of social issues gaming. I, I wouldn't be surprised if a country like Brazil ended up being the almost the world leader in that kind of niche serious issues game in the future. And it's something that we in America don't pay enough attention to, probably because of like language barriers and stuff like that. But I bet if you go to like places like the Philippines or start playing on the black gray market, I bet you they're like developer, garage developer type, like one person programming, like we're doing some pretty incredible stuff that we don't even know about. That's pretty interesting. <laughs> well, Brazil, at least. I know Brazil's, Brazil's cool. I, I would just imagine that there's stuff going on elsewhere that... That we don't know about. Yeah, just doesn't get a lot of press. That's an interesting point you bring up, Simon, because I, I literally, I believe that the most punk or the most indie and the most groundbreaking gaming <laughs> is done by female developers, especially... Portal. In, yeah, Portal, <laughs> especially in the critical space, games for change. I literally believe that most of the groundbreaking new games come out from underprivileged voices. And surprisingly, many producers, both in film and games, I see are women, actually. And you say how they're stuck in the boys' club. How do you think these female producers can, you know, break out of this sort of, you know, boys' club of all these men they're in developing their game? So wait, are we, are we talking about indie games? Both mainstream and indie games, this, I see a sort of connection or a lineage between the two. I think it's, it's a matter of getting the funding. I mean, trying to do something new with games you have to sell your game or idea and get the money for it. Since you're going into new territory, a lot of producers and financial backers, they don't want to take the risk. They'd rather just back the next Madden, the next Grand Theft Auto, the next God of War, because those are proven sellers. They don't want to try tapping. Having a female produce or direct a game also, I mean, doesn't even ensure that you would be opening up a new market. If you're talking about developers specifically, there's one thing that has to happen first, which is simply that they need to get more ear time and eye time, right? 
So usually you only hear about a developer if they're the head of a legacy famous studio, right? Or they're this big name making these big games. Like everybody knows Cliffy B and uh, Peter Molyneux, right? And I think that the internet critical gaming communities could be really useful for this or helpful for this is just getting developers out into the open. So you would see people start to get really interested in, in the ideas of these women. And I mean, you can already see stuff like Robin Hunick or Hunicky or I don't know how to pronounce her name, but she just left EA for that game company, right? She's this kind of big name among female developers. That she's going to that company is kind of like an interesting move. One thing I found interesting was I know Bioshock had at least one woman as a producer, and um, a friend of mine had a theory about the game and how like he felt that they tried to work within the demographic that they were handed for this first-person shooter, the male 18 to 34 demographic, and try to teach them something feminist that they could understand. So... I thought that was an interesting way to go about it. If you're working within these confines of the boys club and you're... Can you, can you explain that a little bit more? I remember you talking about that, about how you felt there's a feminist interpretation of Bioshock and you felt that this was a way to package a feminist message in a way that young male gamers can understand better. Well, the first thing was the critique of basically the beauty myth and the first, the first section of Bioshock has you chasing down this plastic surgeon and he's like really demented, and he and there's these um like scrawlings in uh, in blood on the walls, and that says stuff like with Adam there's no excuse not to be beautiful. Yeah, it's like this really really harsh critique of beauty culture. So that's one thing. And then with the little sisters, if you get the good ending of the game, I guess I'm gonna spoil it for you guys. In the good ending, you rescue all the little sisters and you bring them up to the surface, and they become basically your family, and you like send them to college and they all, and some of them get married and then they're like with you at your deathbed as you're like dying. It's like really, really cheesy. So <laughs> when, when I played it, I was like rolling my eyes. I was like, oh, okay. Oh, good. Oh, I'm so glad I could, you know, let them all get married. That's so important. <laughs> but, but, um, my friend saw it as like, oh yeah, you know, they really, they're not just these things that you collect in this game world. They're, they're actual characters. These little girls are people that, if they had a normal life, they would grow up and have lives of their own. Like, they're not just objects. And he thought that was a pretty powerful message. And there's also the thing about the social conditioning, but that's a whole other story. sort of, you know, a more level playing field of gender critiques in gaming, but when there's not even a level playing field in most other mediums, is, is that good? That because gaming is so new that here's a new chance to have this sort of discourse, or should we not even expect games to have this sort of discourse when other mediums are fledgling so behind as well? I don't think there's anything wrong with ever expecting things to be better. If things aren't okay, I'm probably never going to be okay with settling for the status quo. There's a, there's a post at Shakespeare, a gigantic progressive feminist blog. The head blogger, Melissa McEwen, was just saying, look, I know there's a lot of bad out there, and it's not going to get better in a day, but that's never going to stop me from expecting more. I will always expect more. So I think that's a good mentality to take towards into any medium. I mean, it's true, video games are, are not the only medium that's sorely lacking in gender and racial and, and sexuality and, and ability, etc., etc., equality, but it's the one that we, in particular, love, and so that's where our efforts are going to be focused, but I don't think it hurts gaming to have these kinds of conversations and to constantly be trying to push it forward. 
Yeah, I agree that if we just say, oh, that's the way games are, you know, games are marketed this way, that's just the way it is, unless we expect more or unless we say this needs to be changed or I don't like those, then it never will change. And I, I think critique is important for that. If there are voices out there who say, hey, the way this game is marketed is really stupid and insulting, saying that over and over again might spark some change somewhere. It's, it's always hard to be one of the few voices saying, hey, you know, I have a problem with this, with the imagery in this game, or I have a problem with this game's themes, and then other people are like, oh, well, I don't see that, I think you're just, you know, imagining things, but I think it's important to just speak out about it, because otherwise this status quo will remain the status quo. I do find it interesting that there hasn't been a successful boycott yet of a of a game. I was kind of expecting it with uh, Resident Evil 5, but... Oh, there was no boycott of that. <laughs> That's weird, though, because, I mean, it seems like enough, I guess even among persons of color, it wasn't even unanimous enough to to be able to build, like, a, a boycott movement. But, I mean, like, I mean, I, I'm not buying Capcom products uh, for, for, you know, the foreseeable future. Uh, and, I mean, I assumed that something like that, something that highly publicized and written about over and over again, might be able to sustain a... Something like that. And maybe until we see a big unanimous boycott of a very big budget game, then these things won't start gaining more ground, like popular ground. Yeah, I think they're difficult because there's the the risk that it's just going to fall through and make your argument seem even more irrelevant if you're not able to organize a strong boycott. Right, yeah. I mean, I definitely think there are a lot of people out there, for myself speaking, there's a lot of games out there that I'll be interested in and I won't buy because something about the marketing or the design of the development will just... It, it's offensive to me. Like, I mean, Resident Evil 5, I wouldn't buy. I haven't played the other games, so I wouldn't buy anyway. But, okay, off the top of my head, there's a recent PSP game, Brandish, that came out in Japan that I was interested in picking up because I don't think it's going to be translated and localized in the U.S. And when I saw the cover, it was just tits and ass. And I said, all right, forget this. I can take this game off my to-buy list. There's no support that. I think, I mean, it's definitely happening on a, a smaller level, but yeah, to get it up on the... On a large scale, it's it's difficult. Like, I, I, won't, I won't buy Fat Princess, and I know there's a lot of outcry about that from feminist um, gamers and feminists, but mm -hmm. I th still think it's going to do pretty well because, you know, there's a lot of marketing hype behind it. The... Game design seems pretty solid, so yeah, I don't think an organized boycott would really do anything. So linking back to The Witcher, one of the things that people said about The Witcher was that um, there were female, uh, prominent female writers uh, on the staff for The Witcher, right? And that oh, really? it was the intention. It was the intention of the sex cards to portray the protagonist as a sexist, right? So there's this problem where because because of non-disclosure agreements. And because of the lack of exposure for developers, uh, like mainstream exposure, where we would see these people's interviews broadly, is that a lot of the times we don't know the difference between what's meant as a critique and what's meant and what's ignorance, right? I mean, that's like a big, basically a big transparency problem for the industry, which, I mean, and it doesn't let them off the hook. It's not like, oh, well, I wanted to show that the character was, was a sexist. But, I mean, it is this kind of weird issue where, like, you know, if you're having a conversation with somebody you know and they say something, that, you know, sounds a little racist, well, you might know that they're actually being critical of other racists, right? But you don't know if nobody's telling you. Yeah, that's, so, that's a really like, good point. I think there's a way, like, generally, if it's a good critique, then you're going to be able to tell that it's a critique. So if you're having trouble right. telling whether it's actual racism or if it's a critique, then then it's probably just going to be racist and it's not a very good critique. Well, but then there's also the fact that a lot of it's these things have to be critique. slipped in past producers, necessarily want right like well i don't want my character to be to be sexist so it, it's almost like you have to trick the people you're working for if you want to put this stuff in there that it's really complicated and yeah i i totally agree with you though like i mean if you're gonna have a critique you better be damn well sure that you you get the point across or else you raised an issue simon about you know when is someone trying to critique stuff and when are they just actually being offensive. And I, I really think you're right in that a lot of it is you might have developers that aren't actually this sexist, that aren't actually this clueless or awful, but they have to get past marketing and producer filters that are going to want to sanitize and distort the message. And what finally right. reaches the public might be a lot different than what they intended. And that is an important consideration. 
people know it like games are produced and developed by teams and a lot of hands touch a game before it ever gets out but they also don't necessarily understand the kind of tension that goes not necessarily tension but creative differences that might might go along in the process so we never know there could have been someone at capcom saying hey i have a problem with this or in resident evil 5 but because we don't have that side we just assume that you know everyone okayed it but that might not right. be the case so is this a problem with the sort of gaming culture of being unable to actively interrogate and read these criticisms, or is it also part of problem of the developer not being able to sufficiently provide this critique more clear-cut for the user? Everybody's got to work together. Everybody's got to do their part to make these things more transparent. And, I mean, critique never hurts. If you critique something for being sexist and it turns out you were wrong, I mean, I mean, so you might have wasted your time, but it's not like you're an idiot and you, you're done with your life. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's probably just it's evidence of growing pain within with video game criticism is still really in its infancy. So we're just we're in a stage where we're, we're starting to work our way through it and seeing what kind of impact that this kind of feedback and critical discussion of gaming has. And I think because it is in its infancy, the way that many gamers will receive this kind of criticism is as like an attack on their pastime. You know, they're not used to seeing people being critical of race in games or, you know, like the Fat Princess body image in games. They're not used to it. So they're like, oh, my God, these people hate games. They hate us. It's the next Jack Thompson. They're coming to take away our games. Yeah, they're, they're all about censorship, blah, 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 when it's really not about that. It's about saying that the way that women, people of color, gay people, etc., are portrayed in games is not right, but that doesn't mean we want to take your toys away. It just means that there's a problem. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was really sad to me how the conversation around rape play became all about you're either for censorship of rape play or you're not. And I just felt like this is a useless conversation to have because the fact of the matter is the game already exists. It can't be censored at this point, so... That's just a moot point. So why are we having this conversation about whether we should censor rape in games or not when the conversation should be about why are games like this being made? Why is there a market for this game? Why do people consume these games? And how is it harmful and, and damaging to women? That's the conversation that I wish had happened instead of people screaming, this is censorship if we critique rape play. We must allow rape in games in order to come of speech. It's such a pointless conversation. I think we can all agree on that. What do you see the role of new games criticism that you see today, both in the blogosphere and like new games journalism and in the academic sphere? And what do we need to do as a community to promote this stuff, even um, as designers as well? I think we all need to learn to listen better to one another. And I just I feel like a lot of criticism of games, whether it's Wherever, whatever direction it's coming from, you have really knee-jerk reactions because a lot of gamers, we feel very protective of our hobby and insular culture still, those of us who've been gaming for you know decades and often feel that any critique of our, our culture and any critique of our games is an attack upon us and, and we must fight back with force. And I think that kind of attitude and approach to gaming criticism is what needs to be quenched here. And I think listening is really important. And I mean, I can certainly understand that kind of attitude. I, Regina gets, doesn't like talking about Star Wars with me because any, any critique of Star Wars, I tend to bristle and get really angry and defensive, <laughs> regardless of whether it's rational or not. 25. I think once, you know, gaming is becoming so much more mainstream and the more mainstream it gets, I think the more we're going to be able to critique games without having to deal with that backlash just for the critique existing. I mean, there is a wealth of movie and, and literature critique out there, and people don't automatically get angry. Why are you critiquing my book unless it's like the Twilight fans or something or, like yeah, that? Yeah, like you hate <laughs> book readers. If you're critiquing this book I like, you, you hate all book readers. Like, go to hell. <laughs> yeah, so I think that once there's just more broad acceptance for gaming in general you'll see a lot of gamers calm down when they when they see critique. It's it's like the that you like to say, Regina, gamers want games to be taken seriously until they're taken seriously and then they don't. Yeah. I mean we love to talk about how 
discuss whether games are art or not. Being art comes criticism. And I think a lot of gamers don't want this. Like, they don't want people overthinking their hobby. They don't want people overthinking Resident Evil 5. They don't want people overthinking Fat Princess because they're, they're like, it's just a game. Well, when you create something it, it no longer becomes just this thing to a lot of people when you watch a movie or you read a book it's not just a book it also says something about the culture that produces it and how our society is reflected in that and a lot of people don't want that but a lot of people do see these things in games and, and stuff so that that's where, i think that's where the clash comes in it's the people who are like it's just a game i don't want you overthinking my games and the other people are like no game it's, there's all this other stuff too you know, to a certain extent, I can understand the just-the-game people, but books aren't just books and films aren't just films. They're not immune from criticism, and I think gamers need to understand this. No, I think this is probably going to be like the beginning of when game culture starts separating and branching out. The saying that there is like specialty in sexploitation films or snuff films or, you know, 1920s, 1910s silent film will get... You know, gamers that want to criticize and want to look at games critically, and then we'll have gamers that want just games, and then we'll have gamers that want to look at the history of games, and we'll have gamers that want to look at just flash porn games. I mean, it's the dawn of a new era. <laughs> what I would like to see simply within gaming criticism circles is just maybe more of an awareness that there of other people out there. I mean, when you look at a lot of gaming criticism circles, it's mostly just dudes, and they don't seem to be very aware that it's entirely or mostly comprised of just dudes. I mean, for me, if, if I look around and I see a homogenous group, that says something to me, and it makes me kind of a little more, not necessarily skeptical, but I'm questioning, you know, where's the diversity in this? Why aren't other voices being represented? So I, I guess I would just like to see gaming criticism, maybe to, take a look around and look at what's lacking, what's lacking from gaming criticism right now. I think the... The whole gaming criticism sphere is really robust and talking about a lot of interesting things in the game, but there does lack a lot of criticism of, of oppression in gamings is what is not there right now. And I'd like to see I'd like to see people being a little bit more critical of that that missing criticism. Why are other voices lacking? Does that mean anything? And if so, what? The the thing that I'd be scared of is, is how do you prevent it from becoming instead of okay, white dudes uh, you need to care about these issues. So th it could either become like, well, so white dudes integrate their, their critical gaming communities, or it could become white dudes suddenly become an expert on race and gender and start. And I, I think this is something that you've, you've, uh, you know, cautioned against before, uh, on people's blogs is like, how do you think that white males should go about becoming more educated about it? Is it just about um, reading the blogs of the oppressed? Or do you think there's some like, books that people should read or class, you know, like classes they should take. I think that'd be really helpful if you have any advice in that regard. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know about classes since most of my, my anti-oppression education has all come from the internet and just reading blogs. I think, I think the two things is reading, no, sorry, three things, reading, listening, and making mistakes. We're all going to make mistakes. We all screw up a lot and do and say offensive things and it's from those mistakes that and how we respond to them that we learn i think some white dude blogger out there is saying and gets called out on it and he, and he messes up it happens it's okay it's it's really okay to mess up it's how you respond to messing up and what you've learned from it that is really important and so i think i would like to see more people blogging and talking about issues that don't necessarily affect them on a personal level and if they mess up it's okay i'd rather have it be there than have a complete absence i mean there are so many games that like tomb raider i would rather have the tomb raider games exist than not even though you know lara croft has been distorted and just turned into like a really great example of sexism and gaming i am still glad to see that the series exists and that there are more games out there with women protagonists, even though if a lot of them miss the mark and end up just being really offensive and stupid, like Bayonetta, I'd rather they exist <laughs> than not. Velvet Assassin looks awful. Yeah. I think Dennis was playing it and, in, and writing about it recently, about some of the problems with Velvet Assassin. But I'd rather, I'd rather have the Velvet Assassins and the Tomb Raiders and the Bayonettas exist, and I'd rather have the commentary on gender and race, etc., in games that's not always so great. I'd rather have it exist 
not exist. And I think people should know it's it's really okay to make mistakes. Yeah, I agree with the mistakes uh, part. That if I know mean, we see this in the in the feminist community as well, like if someone says something like horrifically wrong, the way they respond to it is like pretty important because you could. If you start to like come from a position of defending your mistakes, I didn't mean to do this, blah blah blah, rather than saying, "Oh, okay, I didn't, I understand what I did, you know, why it was wrong, but I'm listening to you and I, I'm listening to what you're saying, and now I can see I'm sorry." That can head off a lot of like internet flame discussions like really quickly. I've seen it happen like on my blog. People just, you know, apologize and then. The issue's over. Like it doesn't have to turn into this just huge discussion, you know, where people get stressed out and stuff. I think being able to accept the fact that you can make mistakes and saying "I'm sorry" or saying "Oh, okay," I, I think that's really like a big, a big thing. To add on, also, I, there's a general problem with just people not having any any empathy or sympathy for other people, and that, I mean that's a big problem with like the world in general. But <laughs> it's but but it just comes down to, you know, people, like, if someone say, you know, I was really put off or hurt by whatever you said, and people just not giving a crap, so, if we could somehow, you know, foster communities that, you know, value empathy for other people, then that would be really helpful, too. Yeah, I think that empathy, because I think what a lot of people don't realize when, when you do sexist, racist, homophobic, etc. stuff, Oftentimes, I mean, I know for, for myself, when I hear people say stuff that's just really off-the-wall offensive to me, when I hear people say stuff like, oh, that's so gay, or or that's retarded, it, I honestly, I feel sick to my stomach the moment I hear it. It feels like a punch to the gut, and, and I speak up and say, hey, it was offensive that you said that, and people get angry at you for speaking up. I mean, I just wonder, do they even realize how much their initial outburst, how hurtful it was? And I really don't think they intended that hurt, and, mm-hmm. you know... If you run into someone on the street and you knock them over, you're not going to say, you asshole, it was your fault. You're going to apologize for knocking them over whether you intended it or not. I mean, people get so caught up on their intent, whether or not they intended to be offensive. And I think what they miss is whether or not you intend to to knock someone over in the street, the the result is that they were knocked over and they, you know, they're down on the ground and could use some help to get back up and you should probably apologize for knocking them down whether you meant it or not. And I think also another thing to keep in mind is that many of people who write from anti-oppression perspectives are coming to it from their own personal experience. When, you know, when I or Alex or, you know, someone else writes about this sexism in games, it's with the un- the understanding that we're we're approaching this based on our you know own perspectives and experiences and which are very personal, so because a lot of guys don't have that personal experience, they kind of think of it in very emotionally removed terms. And it's just an intellectual debate to a yeah. lot of people that don't experience that oppression. You've got people who are coming at this where it's a very personal issue that is affecting them on a daily basis, and then you've got people coming at it who think it's just an intellectual debate, and that often ends up in, in a lot of hurtful things being said because the person who's not experiencing it doesn't realize how personal this is and what they're treating as very dispassionately as debate is actually, they're debating someone else's life, someone else's life experience. Yeah, that, that's the comment you made on the critical distance thing that made me realize why I was being a jerk uh, to Alex. Um, and I think that's something that that's re- it's really hard to communicate. Well, like everything you've just been talking about, that that it's it can be a personal issue, and also that it, it can be very hurtful, right? Yeah, it requires a lot of awareness and just the willingness to admit that you're you might be wrong, or you know that you will make mistakes, but it's okay. And just again, going back to that point of listening and being willing to accept that you're fallible, and maybe you're not the authority on everything under the universe. Well, Alex, Olivia, Regina, and Simon, I want to thank you all for coming. Thank you. And thanks for having me. Thank you for having Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. It was fun. Yeah, I had a good time. This was probably one of the most enjoyable podcasts I've produced so far, so (laughs) I hope to have you on again, and 
looking forward to what you have to write in the future. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks. My view of feminism was never gender-based. My view of feminism was always on the other. And I always viewed feminism as a as more of a status of minorities as well as gender. And when we're talking about, you know, sexism and, and female representation in games, we're, we're also forgetting about other non-voices that aren't heard in gaming. Oh, yeah. There are so many neglected voices. That's definitely true. I think you need both. I think if you just, if you're nice and... You try to passively expose people's prejudices to try to get them to change. You're only going to go so far with that. Uh, I think you do need, like Alex said, the the kick in the pants to some extent. I mean, just take, for example, the threat of doom at critical distance. Many people, Kateri, Takanji, Brinstar, were trying to patiently explain their point of view and why what had happened wasn't okay and what needed to change. And then... You had the post from Ben that came in and just really seemed to not have been listening to anything that they said. And when I got to that point, I was pissed off. I felt like they've been patiently and calmly trying to explain their point of view, and it's not being heard. It's it's being ignored. And that was when I just got pissed off and just said, okay, f*** it. I can try to play nice, or I can just say what I'm thinking and see what kind of impact that's going to have. And I saw on Twitter, you know, a lot of the readers were angry that I had come in there with so much anger and just unleashed it and were like, I don't think she should have been that angry. She could have said it nicer. Well, what we felt was that Alex and Kateri and Regina and Takanji had been saying it nicer and no one was hearing it. And then after I said it in a pissed off way, a lot of people started paying a lot more attention and listening at that point. Marxist conflict argument, basically. I mean, that, that uh, being nice doesn't actually bring about change, you know? I mean, you need to clash.